right, how are we? Good to see you guys. Good to be here. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. We are continuing in our City in the City series where we're taking a break. We normally teach through books of the Bible in their entirety, so we're working through Romans this year. Took a break in August to talk about what does it mean to be a city in the city. That is, what do we, as the people of God, how do we live countercultural, beautifully countercultural lives where we put on display the goodness of what life looks like when Jesus Christ is Lord? Two weeks ago, we talked about dependency. Last week, we talked about ethnic reconciliation. And tonight, what we're going to talk about is privilege. We're going to talk about privilege, which um, I've been kind of the most sleepless for this one, um, for a sermon for a really long time. And I think I got a feeling of why, um, after the 9 a.m. gathering, where the first conversation I had after I preached, a guy came up and he said, as soon as you said privilege, it made me feel guilty and shameful. And I'm like, whoa, like, that was like the first word in the sermon. Like, let's just, like, slow up before we jump to these particular conclusions. But I do want to challenge you. I want to challenge myself this evening. And so before we kind of jump immediately to being a little bit defensive, let me kind of define what I mean when I say uh, privilege, and I'll kind of show you where this conversation is coming from uh, in my heart. So here's how I'm defining privilege. Privilege is having access to better resources and benefits than others, even though I've done nothing to deserve those advantages. And I would add on to that, even though somebody else has done nothing to deserve their disadvantages, all right? Privilege is having access to better resources and benefits than others, even though I've done nothing to deserve those advantages. And somebody else has done nothing to deserve those disadvantages. Maybe to help you wrap your mind around this, I'm going to talk to you about how I've been processing privilege some in my own life. I wish I could start the sermon by talking about how like, hard my upbringing was. Um, I know it's not very cool to start a sermon listening to the white dude in a Patagonia shirt be like, look at how privileged I was growing up, right? Like that's not a very cool way to start, but it is my reality. I've been trying to process it a lot over the past many years and particularly zooming in on it for the past few months. And so where this was really triggered for me was actually the beginning of my sabbatical. Remember, this series is a lot of what I was thinking about at the beginning of the summer uh, as I was going into sabbatical and through it. And at the beginning of sabbatical, I just got done um, working out, which I know is a pretentious way to begin a sermon, but that's just the circumstance I found myself in. So just got done working out, really exhausted, really tired, and I find myself in a grocery store in or around downtown. I'm being unclear for a purpose, okay? This grocery store will re- uh, remain unnamed. And said grocery store is full of security at all times. I'm not sure exactly why, but they have tons of security. So I find myself in this grocery store scavenging like a wild man to get some sort of food and get some sort of drink so I don't die in the grocery store. That's not the way I want to die, but I felt like I was going to die, and I'm trying to get food and water or drink as quickly as possible. But at the same time, I'm always wrestling with, I want every kind of place I go into to be a potential opportunity, and I find myself in the middle of this journey to save my life from the death from working out uh, in a conversation with one of the security guards in this grocery store. And it was an interesting conversation because he was talking to me, but he was also on the walkie-talkie talking to the other security guards in the grocery store as well. So he was hopping in and out of conversations with me. He's like, yeah, you know, it's just a job. I don't really love it that much. Uh, We uh, have eyes on a gentleman over by the salad bar. You know, um, my wife and I are trying to look for something else. It was like we're going back and forth, back and forth on that. And so we're in the middle of this conversation, and um, all of a sudden I hear him get on the walkie-talkie, and he just breaks in the conversation like it's no big deal, okay? Um, It's a a larger African-American male, uh, looks a little suspicious. He is by the salad bar. 
He is uh, making his way by the uh, hot soups. He is making his way to the drinks. He is stopping at the drinks. He is grabbing a cold drink. He is opening a cold drink without pain. Why don't we go ahead and engage him? Why don't we go ahead and have a conversation with them? And then he just breaks out of the conversation. He's like, so anyways, yeah, and my kids are entering second grade. And it was a really startling moment for me um, because here was the catch, was this guy who was sort of the eyes for the security in this grocery store were, um, was kind of like leading to all his troops swarming on this guy for opening a drink without paying for it first. Um, but I was having this conversation with an open drink that I hadn't paid for first. And it was actually a kombucha, not a water, which is exponentially more expensive than a water in the first place. And it really struck me, right? I mean, it's like, okay, that's, there's some element of privilege there on display. Like, you know, I try to wrap my mind, like, was there any other variable? And there wasn't. Like, we were the same age. We were dressed the same. He was in athletic clothing. I was in athletic clothing. There was only one variable between him and me, and it was the color of our skin. And I was presumed to be innocent, and he was presumed to be guilty. I would just say that's just a small example, but a very serious example of privilege on display. I've been watching documentary series, because that's what I do in my free time, because I'm a nerd. Um... And it's about kids in poverty trying to make it. And I think, you know, I think we as Americans a lot of times sort of love this idea that um, if people just work hard enough, they can be anything they want to be, they can do anything they want to do. We're kind of all on equal footing. And uh, it's interesting, I was watching this documentary about these kids in poverty trying to do whatever they can to get out and to make it. And there was this kid born into a really difficult situation. At three years old, his mom gets addicted to meth, and she is, boom, out of the picture. So he grows up in a single-parent household. And not only that, um, but none of his parents, none of his family has even attended high school, let alone graduated from it. He's like, I'm going to be different. I'm going to break the cycle of poverty in my family. I'm going to make it. And so he works hard. He says no to drugs. He does all the right things. He gets to high school. He graduates high school. He works really hard at football so he can get a football scholarship because his family can't pay for him to go to college. He makes it to college. It seems like he has broken out of the cycle of poverty and everything's going to be different. Like this is the American dream until he returns home during fall break during his first semester to find that his dad has disappeared because he's addicted to meth as well. And all of a sudden, he's presented with a decision where he either can realize his dream and stay in school and get a college education, or he can stay home. And the reason he chooses to stay home is because he has two sisters, age 14 and age 12, who are going to be thrown into the foster care system if he doesn't decide to stay. And I was thinking about the difference of that experience versus my own experience, where I grew up in a stable environment. My parents were perpetually championing me going to college. I even dropped out of college, and my parents still were like, no, this is not an option. You get a college degree. Like, I was set up in a circumstance where I had to try to not graduate from college. And it's just a different experience. And I think, you know, it's interesting from afar, it might be like, well, you know, I have more education than him, but does that mean that I really worked harder than him? Or does it mean there were unique opportunities, that there were unique privileges extended to me through, like, I didn't do anything right to deserve the family I grew up in, and this guy didn't do anything wrong to grow up in his particular family as well. And so I've been wrestling with this particular uh, reality a lot, and we're going to kind of dive into it. We're going to see what does the Bible have to say. Even when I say privilege, I don't mean it as an intrinsically evil concept. The concept of privilege is nuanced, and we're going to see, actually, that the Apostle Paul, who we've been reading from this entire year, uh, was a highly privileged guy. 
But what really differentiated Paul was this reality, is that for Paul, here's the main idea we're going to be chasing after. For Paul, privilege was not an excuse for arrogance or selfishness, but rather a resource to be sacrificed for the good of the people around him and leveraged for maximum kingdom impact. Okay, that's what we're going to see emerge in the life of Paul. For Paul, privilege was not an excuse for arrogance or selfishness, but rather a resource to be sacrificed for the good of the people around him and leverage for maximum kingdom impact. So we're going to dive into this, but as we do this, I want you to be asking yourself two particular questions, if you can apply this to yourself, because I can't apply it to all of you, um, but we're just praying in this time, God the Holy Spirit, he moves your heart to apply this to yourself as he so leads. So the two questions are this. One, where am I privileged? Am I privileged? I want to get defensive first. I just want to look at what are the unique opportunities and blessings that have been afforded to me? And then two, how then um, can that privilege be leveraged for the good of those around me and maximum kingdom impact? So we're going to go ahead and dive and show how Paul is such a stunning example of this. So first, here's what we're going to look at is Paul privilege and the gospel. And in this, I'm going to walk you through kind of three flowing ideas. One is just showing you Paul's particular privilege. Two, how Paul used his privilege. Three, why Paul used his privilege in this particular way. One, Paul's privilege. Um, we're going to jump into Philippians 2 in a little bit. But before we do that, I want to show you just a, sl a slice of Paul's life from Acts 21 and 22. So here's the context of what was going on. Paul converts to Christianity. The faith is illegal to believe as well as share with others. Paul is preaching this. He's propagating this. He's planting churches uh, for the sake of the gospel. The pushback is fierce and uh, uh, accelerating and getting increasingly hostile. And that brings us to Acts chapter 21, verse 31. And as they were seeking to kill Paul, Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So here's the scene. As Paul is in Jerusalem, at this time, Jerusalem is inhabited by the Jewish people, but it is occupied and trying to be colonized by the Romans. And so the Jewish people are outraged at Paul preaching Jesus as God, as the only son of God, as the only way to God, and they are actually raining blows upon him, but the Romans, sort of um, knowing that a citywide riot is not good for business, drag Paul's almost corpse away from them um, in order to sort of keep the peace and try to figure out exactly what it is that's going on. And what happens from here is where you see Paul's privilege on display. For example, we see one, Paul is highly educated. Chapter 21, verse 37 says this, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? So the Roman soldier is actually highly impressed that Paul is able to speak his particular dialect to such a degree that that Roman soldier gives him permission then to address the larger crowd. And then in verse 40, he does, um, and he starts addressing the crowd, not in Greek, but in Hebrew. Not exactly easy languages to hop in between one another. Verse 40, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying. And then in chapter 22, verse 2, it says this again, and when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more Quiet. So you're seeing Paul's intelligence and his education on display, allowing him to jump between languages depending on the audience in which he is talking to. Two, Paul's well-connected. Chapter 22, verse 3 th says this. 
I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Now, when Paul says he is educated at the feet of Gamaliel, this is a um, major name drop moment from Paul, okay? Basically, I mean, none of us are like, ooh, Gamaliel, like I read his blog, like I know you don't, okay? Like, but in this context, Gamaliel was one of the leading uh, educators, he was one of the leading influencers in the Jewish community, and Paul just drops his name, being like, oh yeah, I happen to be trained by Gamaliel. And people were like, whoa, whoa. It's kind of like if you were trying to break into the television industry and they were like, well, what are your uh, qualifications? You were like, I don't know. Um, I was mentored by a woman. I don't know if you ever heard of her. Her name's Oprah. And uh, I could actually text her right now and she'd text me back because that's how close we are because she mentored me. It's the sort of this a name drop. Like, I know this person. Paul was a very well-connected person. Three, Paul has the right citizenship. Now, in this culture, as well as in every culture, there's been unique rights and benefits and opportunities afforded to you if you were born in the right country as opposed to other countries. And it was no different in the first century. Sort of the dream place to hold citizenship from was Rome. And you see this on display starting in verse 27 of chapter 22. It says, the tribune came to him and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Isn't it interesting? The way that question was going to be answered, are you or aren't you a Roman citizen made all the difference. If Paul says no, they're like off with his head. But Paul says yes, and everybody freaks out. And Paul's even like, yeah, I was born into it. And the guy that he's having a conversation with is like, man, I wanted to be a Roman citizen so bad, even though I wasn't born into it, I paid a small fortune to have it. Because Paul was just, he was born in the right family. He was born in the right country to have these unique rights established to him where, for example, it's not off with his head, but we got to respect this guy because of the citizenship in which he holds. And so what you see in chapters 21 through 22, what really jumps off the page is the unique privileges of Paul. Lots of education, lots of connections, circumstantially blessed. This was just the reality that Paul found himself in. Two, how did Paul use his privilege? Well, we said this already, but I'll remind you that Paul used his privilege as a tool to be sacrificed for the good of the people around him and leveraged for maximum kingdom impact. So think about this. Let's think about what Paul doesn't do and what Paul does do. Now, what Paul doesn't do is he doesn't in that moment or any moment in the book of Acts is the threats are growing more and more and more and there's less and less safety for him. He doesn't find some sort of way to compile his education and his connections and his influence to get away from the danger which should be sort of a subtle or not so subtle rebuke to us who are Americans because a lot of times that's sort of what we assume is the will of the Lord for us, right? Like if we find ourselves in even a semi-dangerous circumstance where it's kind of like, well, I know what God wants to do. I don't even have to pray about it. Like I'm just going to use all my power and all my money and all my influence and all my privilege to get as far away from the threats as possible. Surely that's what the Lord would determine for my life. And Paul doesn't do that. You know what Paul does is he perpetually lays down his rights and privileges for the singular purpose of bringing flourishing to the people around him and maximum kingdom 
impact as well. And so what Paul doesn't do is tap out and sort of play all these influence cards he has to get away from the mission, but instead what he does is something beautifully countercultural. He goes upstream. He continues to work his way down deep, deep, deep into the belly of the beast where the threats are even more dangerous. And so what you see happen in Acts 21 through 26 is this uh, increased crescendo of danger and threats and Paul having every opportunity to say no and to run away from the mission and the movement, but he doesn't. He keeps running towards the front lines of God's mission until it reaches a climax in Acts chapter 26 where Paul leverages all his influence. He lays down all his cards, all the privileged chips that were given to him in his life to get a hearing from one of the most influential men in the world of that time, a guy by the name of Agrippa. And he gets in front of Agrippa, and he preaches the gospel to Agrippa, which would have been determined an unbelievably hostile act. The Roman Empire functioned off this posture, as many ancient empires did, that the emperor is a god, that the people who are rulers are gods. And there's Paul in their courtroom declaring, there is one god, you're not him, repent and believe, Jesus Christ is the only way. Surely, probably with some element of fear and trepidation, that they're going to say, off with his head. But actually, that's not what they respond. They're kind of puzzled. And we actually see what happens in Acts chapter 26, where Agrippa says to Paul, this is verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What a freaking baller, right? Like, that is such a... That takes some intestinal fortitude to say that to that guy. I'm like a coward. I would have been like, well, if you don't want to believe, who am I to tell you to believe? You know, like, it's just. And you see that Agrippa comes back. You're not going to persuade me to be a Christian. And then we see this sort of backroom conversation where Agrippa is puzzled. Like, why is this guy who's so influential not using this influence for his own welfare? But why is he laying it down? And this happens in verse 31. When they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Agrippa's asking, why does a guy of such privilege and opportunity keep getting closer to danger rather than further away? And what we see in Paul is that privilege for him was a tool to be sacrificed for the good of the people around him and leverage for maximum kingdom impact. Three, Why did Paul use his privilege in this way? Now, here's the key, is you are not supposed to sort of be impressed by Paul like he is this unapproachable superhero. He is rather an example for us to emulate and to replicate. All right, this is very important for you to hear, because sometimes we read the stories of Paul, and we're like, man, that guy was a freaking baller. I could never do something like that. That's not the point. The point is not for you to be impressed, but to be pushed to be impressed by the Spirit, to be pushed to replicate using whatever privilege and opportunities have been afforded to you underneath the good and gracious hand of God. Now, we see elsewhere in Paul's writings in Philippians 2 that uh, Steph read for us in the beginning, um, the heart behind why it is that Paul handled his privilege in this particular way. And all that we see Paul tell us in Philippians 2 is that Paul is not coming up with original ideas and he's not uniquely sacrificial, but instead is emulating and replicating the way that Jesus Christ has first treated him and us in the gospel. 
He says this in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if you're identifying as a follower of Jesus, your mind should be set upon something that has been given to you through the finished work of Christ. So this is not exclusively for you if you happen to be super spiritual, but this is given to you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. It's given to you in Christ Jesus. And what did he do? Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The point that Paul is making here is that, look, if you don't self-identify as a follower of Jesus and your worldview is one of um, my existence sort of came from chance, we make our own fate, I'm successful, I work harder than the people around me, if that is your uh, atheistic worldview for understanding why you're experiencing what it is that you're experiencing, then yes, Consistent with that worldview is the permission for you to do you, for you to have a a tremendous degree of self-righteousness about your accomplishments and your achievements and your privilege and to look at your money and your stuff and your power and say, mine, nobody else's, mine, and to leverage it exclusively for you and maybe the small circle of people around you that you have deemed worthy of your blessing. Like That's totally okay. I think I would just humbly say that worldview is wrong but I'd say it's at least consistent. But hear me, if you self-identify as a follower of Jesus Christ, and you don't just like, like I'm not talking just like easy believism, American churchianity, say a prayer so my eternity can feel somewhat secure and I'll live however I want to live until I breathe my final breath. But I'm talking like you behold Christ. Like you supremely, above all else, treasure what it is that Jesus has done for you. Like you look at Jesus Christ and you look at the most powerful person who has ever lived in the history of the world. Not just fully human, but fully divine. Uh, Unapproachable in his power. Unparalleled in his influence and his privilege. And you look at the life that he lived in that you know, when he comes to be born, he doesn't, he doesn't get born in a palace. He doesn't get born in the 21st century in Denver, Colorado at Rose Medical Center because the, the, the medical care is excellent and he won't have any concerns whatsoever. Like, what does he do? He chooses the most powerful person who's ever lived. He chooses to be born in a manger. Don't romanticize that. It's supposed to be gross. He's born in and amongst the livestock because there's no room for them anywhere else. Why? Because he's declaring that even from his infancy, he's come to identify with the most broken and outside people in the culture. You look at when this guy starts to grow up and to be a man, he starts to get influence, and he does things like multiply fishes and loaves. He feeds 5,000 people, and the crowd's so pumped that they've been fed. I mean, who wouldn't be pumped about that, right? Like, bread out of nothing? Make that guy king. That's what we would think. That's what they think. They try to take him by force and make him king. And think about this. For most of us, we function in our lives from a posture of, well, if I'm going to get a raise, I got to take it. I'm not even going to pray about it. It's God's will for me. 
You know, most of us are sort of like, of course God would give me more power. Of course God would give me more influence. Of course God would give me more opportunity. And all the power in that culture of that day is trying to be freely given to Jesus. And you know what he does? He says no, because he was driven by this conviction that I am going to understand my life from something far clearer than the circumstances that happened to happen to me, but from an intimate relationship with a loving father who's speaking to me. He came not to be served, but rather to serve. And so when the crowds try to take him by force to make him a king, he withdraws into isolation because he was not headed towards a palace, but rather to a stinking Roman cross. And even before getting ready to go to that cross, when he is seized by force, his disciples try to do everything in their power to leverage their power and their might and their influence to protect Jesus. Peter, the chief disciple, pulls a sword out and starts cutting people's ears off. And Jesus is like, you dummy, put that sword away. He didn't say that, but that's what I would have said, right? He's like, put the sword away. Do you, do you not think do you not think if my priority was my safety, I could not call down 10,000 legions of angels to smoke all of these jokers? <laughs> yeah, my translation. But <laughs> why? Because the priority for Jesus wasn't safety. It wasn't security. It wasn't comfort. It wasn't ease but it was the flourishing of the people around him. It was maximum kingdom impact because he knew within a few short hours he would be crucified to take upon himself our sins, the sins of the world. When you come to behold, like Paul says in verse 8, that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that turns upside down all of our paradigms and the instinctual posture that we as Americans a lot of times have, where we will even spiritualize that what God wants from me is nothing more than safe, comfort, ease, me being happy, a few other people around me being happy, that is not the way that anybody in the first century who self-identified as a follower of Jesus thought. And yeah, it is predominant in American Christianity. Checking my time. Let's go to point two. <laughs> Us privileging the gospel. Here's where this, this burden is birthed out of is that um, you know I was on sabbatical got to go to a lot of different cities and Denver's unique in a lot of ways um, <clears throat> I think the thing that struck me the most by being in other cities is the unique reason that so many people in Denver uh, come here in a lot of ways you know as you travel to other cities and probably for those of you who aren't natives now I've been here for eight years I don't know when I qualify for my native bumper sticker, but when I do, somebody tell me, and I'm putting it on my car, because um, I get, I get like we're transplants and we're frustrating. And I think here's, I've been trying to think about this, exactly why is that? Because I think what differentiates, again, I'm making some broad generalizations here, I understand, I'm not saying all of you are like this, but what differentiates 
Denver transplants from transplants I saw in other cities that I traveled over the past few months is that in most cities around the world, the reason that people happen to live there is usually either because they have a job and they're just trying to make a living or because they have family and they can't exist without the support structure of their family around them. But Denver is unique in this and that I think a predominant, maybe the predominant reason that I hear at least people living in this city is because it quote unquote seems like a cool place to live. I actually even read this uh, travel blog this past week because I was wondering, like, hey, what do people think about Denver from afar? And you know what they said? They used this quote. They said, living in Denver is an experience. And I want to be careful here because I'm not trying to be, like, unnecessarily harsh, but I do think that we have to be self-reflective and self-aware to ask ourselves, here's the haunting question I've been wrestling through is can a city truly flourish when it's flocked to men and women around the country who come here with the primary motivation of being, what sort of experience can you give me? That the posture of the person coming into the city and even into our neighborhood is predominantly one of what can I take and what can I get as opposed to what is it that I can first give? It almost seems like it would be impossible, but could you imagine a reality that when we talk to people who move here, um, the answer would be, oh, what brought you to Denver? And the first response would maybe not necessarily be, I don't know, like I want to do some cool stuff, but instead be like, I love this city and I love this community and I would love to make it a better place. Like if somebody answered that question that way, you'd be like, are you messing with me right now? Like it just would seem, it would just seem so bizarre and so odd and so unusual. But I, I wrestle with the haunting question, can a city truly flourish? Can a city truly be what it is that God determines for it to be when the primary posture of the people that are in it is one of taking rather than giving? And I think a lot of what's happening in our city, and I feel like one of the things that was made clear to me, and this is why I'm speaking strongly about this, is as long as God gives me on the earth pastoring this church in this city is challenging people who might come from this posture, but to be different, to be countercultural, to be radical, because I see far too often the posture of people coming into our city and even this particular neighborhood almost functioning like a mosquito that flies in, sucks up a little bit of experience, gets bored after two years, moves to Austin, moves to Portland, moves to Seattle, does the same thing, gets disappointed there, and then finally, like at 40, is like, well, maybe I should have lived with greater intentionality in my life. It's like, you were created for something more than that. And this city can't flourish if self-identifying followers of Jesus function like that. It's okay if the non-believing world functions like that. It's not okay, but I get it. Their worldview is not coherent with the posture of giving our lives away, no matter the cost. But in the cross of Christ, it turns worldly priorities upside down, and we come into this community not first to take, but rather to give. Not first to hide behind our privilege to see how can we get as much experience as possible so I can be happy and I can be fulfilled and I can make my friends jealous on social media, but instead, how can I give my life away, maybe anonymously, maybe recklessly, maybe dangerously, for the glory of God and for the good of the people that inhabit us in our city? Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. 
Thanks. And the rest of you get no fist bumps. So, <laughs> so like, I love this city. I love this neighborhood. We as the people of God have to be a city in the city and be different in this respect. We got to be. We got to be different than the world in this respect. Let me conclude by saying this. One of the things, in case you're like, well, that was a major bummer. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to say this before uh, I wrapped up. One of the things I thought a lot about was I actually kept a, a three-by-five note card with me. Pink lines. It's my daughter's. I know. Um, and uh, I, I was just writing down ways that I've seen people in the life of our church do this because the point is not being like, you guys are awful at this. Do better at this. But really, a lot of this week has been reflection on the story of the Summit Church and say, we exist because of the men and women of this church function this way. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about um, the way the people of the Summit Church have understood their gospel privilege. They've seen the fact that they've received, believed the gospel, not as a right, not as a skill that they obtained, but rather as a privilege that God freely gifted to them. Like the reason that any of us are saved is not because we woke up one morning and decided to get spiritually, because God in his grace chose to chase us down out of his grace and his mercy. And it should produce within us this radical difference of perspective that impacts the most practical of our decision-making, where we have a lot of people sitting in this room that the reason you live in this city is because you are compelled by a love for your neighbor who does not yet believe. And where you came from is filled with church after church after church on every street block. And it's different here. And it's like you live here because you have that burden of the gospel privilege to say, if I've received this, I want to spread this as well, and I want to see this advance. I want to see this transformation in my life spread to the people around me as well. I think about the resource privileges of our people, that the reason that our church exists is because people have seen their time and their money and their resources not as their own, but instead as tools to be leveraged for the sake of the advancement of the mission. The reason you're able to sit in this room right now is because countless men and women over the past decade have been recklessly generous to let us exist. I don't know if you know this, but it's stupidly expensive to exist in downtown Denver right now, right? Like some of you are like, man, I'm trying to do life in like a 600 square foot studio apartment and it's stupid how much that costs. I know, look at this building, it's big. Do the math for yourself, extrapolate the data. It's expensive and it's the reason that a lot of times churches don't exist in cities. They go to other places where it's less expensive. But for us, we're trying to be countercultural where a church exists in the heart of this neighborhood because the church needs, or this neighborhood seems not, got excited. This, this, this neighborhood needs something else than just another craft brewery. I'm not anti but it's like we don't need a 50th one in like walking distance of where we are right now. I'm just going to move on to the next one. You do with that what you want. Third, I think about the societal privileges. I think about this. Man, God has wrecked me with this. I'm going to give myself an example, not because I think I'm a hero, but because I think I'm an unlikely learner in this respect. I got challenged by a good friend four years ago when I went to him. His name is D.A. Horton. He spoke here a few years ago. I said, man, I'm challenged by all the racial tension. And I'm challenged by the privileges of my skin color. And I don't know exactly what to do. And he's like, man, we need you to speak, and we need you to get involved. And I'm like, I don't know. It feels weird. I don't know how to do that. And he's like, well, just do it. And so I tried to start doing it. And so we do things like the Love Thy Neighbor Forum at XW Event Center, where we have hundreds of people from our community come and have a conversation about racial tension in this particular community. Did it with Brandon Washington, an African-American pastor who's a good friend, part of our network that's just a couple, uh, not even a mile away. And, you know, it was really interesting as we were going into that event, 
I asked Brandon, I said, man, I, I kind of defer to you. What do you want this to look like? What do you think is the best way to do this? And he said something I'll never forget. Brandon said to me, look, if I go up there alone, I'm going to be assumed like I'm just an angry minority. If you go up there alone, you're going to come off like a patronizing white guy. But if you and I go up there together, black and white together, unified, we have the opportunity for a redemptive moment. After Charlottesville, a year ago, somewhat influential Colorado pastor puts out a very unhelpful Facebook response. Nothing good happens on Facebook. That's the moral of tonight. But he puts out a really unhelpful Facebook response. Minority voices are trying to engage him, and he's dismissing, 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 dismissing. And DA's voice is going through my head like, man, you've got to engage this. You've got to leverage your privilege. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to shoot this dude an email. I'm going to send him several thousand words about what my concerns are. I'm going to try to be humble, but I'm also trying to be firm with him as well. And it was amazing the way that he gave me a hearing, the way that he would not for those minority voices. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying it's a reality that I had to engage. And the significant changes that have happened, one of their staff members wrote me afterwards, like, thank you so much for engaging that. Like, we've changed a lot of our policies. The lead pastor's now on a real learning journey to understand a lot of his blind spots in this. Just leveraging that privilege that wasn't even a category for me years ago. I think about the life stage privileges of the people of our church. And I think about how our church is full of single people who do not use their singleness and their unique flexibility as an excuse for selfishness, but rather as a means of sacrifice for the people around whom we don't have that. I think about all the people that serve Summit Kids. I'll just give you one example. I think of all the people that work up in Summit Kids who them, they themselves do not have kids. That's unusual in the church. I don't know if you know that or not. And a lot of churches, what happens is the single people look at the married people with kids and are like, well, you idiots had the kids. You watch the kids as well. <laughs> and it's like we have this, this culture in our church that just because your unique life stage might afford you certain privileges to say, well, it doesn't mean I have to take them. Maybe I need to lay them down for the sake of the flourishing. I think of the, the, the many people in the life of our church that are fostering and adopting, not because it's a last choice scenario, but it's that they are leading their family growth through that thinking to say, here's kids, even in our very community and the very ends of the earth, who have been ignored and been marginalized and are hurting and are at risk, and we are going to lay down our privilege of maybe a stable home environment to care for the least of these. The Summit Church exists because of the countless men and women, now hundreds, which is crazy for me to think about and even say, because hundreds of men and women who see their privilege not as an excuse for selfishness, but rather as a tool to sacrifice and to leverage for the flourishing of the people around you and for maximum kingdom impact. I'm really thankful for that. That's why I love pastoring this church. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for you and we love you. And um, these are hard realities that are countercultural, I think, particularly in a city like Denver. But the people of God have always been at their best when we're bizarre in the right ways. And these are the right ways. And a culture of selfishness that we would be sacrificial, and a culture of self preservation that we would be risky, and a culture of you worry about you that we would say, I worry about my neighbor. And so, God, I pray that it would be that type of lifestyle 
that would write a different narrative of what Denver is going to be in the future. I think a lot of times we feel as serious followers of Jesus, uh, you know, like a real minority in this, in this community, in this city. But God, let us be a strong minority. Let us be a vocal minority. Let us be men and women who put on display the goodness of what life looks like when Jesus Christ is Lord and let your gospel spread through the beautiful fascination of how that is a better way of living than any other way for your glory. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.